0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the third instalment in our Cost of the Crown mini-series. We uncover previously unpublished proof of the royal family's ties to transatlantic slavery.
2: The congregation,
1: all of them standing. That probably means
0: Her Majesty the Queen is about to arrive.
1: A service at Westminster Abbey in 2007 marks 200 years since the abolition of the trade of enslaved people within the British Empire. Her
0: Majesty, introduced to the welcoming party
1: the event is attended by the queen prayers hymns speeches are delivered in front of the monarch to commemorate the british government's decision to end transatlantic slavery
3: to our gracious father who ranses
1: us but then commotion a man rises from his chair and walks to the front just meters from the queen she lifts her head as he begins to speak
4: to make an equality if the word sorry is so hard to say and you're at You are a disgrace. You should not be here. because any Christians who you should be walking out here. You a disgrace, us ancestors.
1: This is campaigner and academic Toyin Agbeti. Toyin had been part of the audience, watching proceedings closely. He was waiting for an apology for the horrors of slavery. And Slowly, it dawned on him that one wasn't coming, Instead, as part of the programme, there was going to be a communal prayer where the entire congregation would be asked to kneel.
0: It became apparent to me that the there was around 2,000 people of African heritage in the space that they were going to kneel down and, and, and beg God's forgiveness for slavery. And, I, and I, 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 you know, I, I can do it. I can't have my children saying, Daddy, why was you begging forgiveness for enslavement, our ancestors? So I, I came to the point, well, no, I, I just can't be here.
1: Toyin decides to walk out.
0: You know, as I got up to leave, there was this kind of like, uh, this energy from everyone, kind of like, what's he doing? It's the, the royal protocol. You don't get up. You you know, you wait to be told to rise. And i no, 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 I'm leaving now. <laughs> and, um, you know, security kind of went a bit panicked. They didn't know what to do.
1: Watching all of this, from a seat on a raised dais in front of the altar and just a few metres from Toyin, was the Queen, She glanced up at him for a moment and then back down at the papers in her lap. Later, most of the news coverage of the moment focused on the protest, the audacity of someone shouting at the Queen. But few of them really explored the substance of what it was he'd been saying.
2: A service at Westminster Abbey to mark the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade was disrupted today by a protester who came within yards of the Queen. Toyin Agbetu shouted at the congregation of 2000, you should be ashamed,
1: But even after all the media attention, there was no public debate about the message he was trying to deliver. No statement from the palace. Continued silence about the royal's connection to slavery. Then, 13 years later, Britain finally started opening its eyes to its horrific past. As the Black Lives Matter protests swept across the world, we saw symbols of our own central role in the trade of enslaved people torn down.
3: This statue of a 17th century slave trade owner, Edward Coulson in Bristol, stands no more. Protesters then dragged it through the street to the harbour. Institutions,
1: including the Guardian, began to investigate their links to enslavement and probe difficult questions. But the monarchy? Well, the only statements we've had that even get close to this are expressions of sorrow. Nothing like an actual apology or recognition of their own links to slavery. Here's Charles speaking in Barbados. From the darkest days of our past, and the appalling atrocity of slavery which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. There have been decades of study from academics and researchers into this history. Until now, it's not received much widespread attention but there are signs that things might be beginning to change. From The Guardian, I'm Maeve McClennigan. Today in Focus, Cost of the Crown, part three. The hidden history of the monarchy and transatlantic slavery. While other reporters in the investigations team have travelled the country, researching horses, jewels and artworks to help uncover the royal family's hidden wealth, reporter David Conn is looking much further back in time. He's been digging into the evidence of how far the monarchy was involved in transatlantic slavery. He teams up with historian Brooke Newman, and she suggests Kensington Palace as a good place to start. The luxurious London residence, which was once home to Princess Diana, and is now home and private office of the Prince and Princess of Wales, William and Kate.
0: It's right in the heart of London, so it's quite a nice day out. You walk through the park, pay £16 to go around the palace.
1: David and Brooke are here because this building holds vital clues about the monarchy's links to slavery. David pulls out his phone and records as they walk around.
0: We're walking around the side, which is behind these huge golden and wrought iron gates. And you can see the size and depth of Kensington Palace and the, the huge rooms and the high windows. I mean, when you look at it, do you look at a building that, I mean, it is obviously inextricably linked to the slave trade.
1: As they wander around the palace grounds, there's something that catches David's eye, a statue of King William III for whom the palace was built in the late 17th century.
4: People just don't know, and mm. so they walk past the statue of William Third, and they don't even know who he is. Yeah. Even the guy who works here said, oh, it's William Fourth. Whoops, I mean William Third. <laughs> Nobody knows. He's yes. seen as just this yep. minor f- figure, yep. not someone who had any involvement in the slave
1: trade. And the reason this is so interesting to Brooke and David is that Brooke has just come from the National Archive. And there, she found a document that puts down in black and white just how William III profited directly from the slave trade. So this document is from the Royal African Company's Stock Books.
4: And what it does is it captures the transfer of 1,000 pounds of shares in the Royal African Slave Trading Company from the Deputy Governor Edward Colston to William of Orange shortly before he was crowned
1: King William III. Let's just let that sink in. This is Edward Colston, the slave trader, and now Britain's most notorious figure in transatlantic slavery, the man whose statue was torn down in Bristol. Here he is, transferring shares to William III in the Royal African Company, the organisation that transported nearly 188,000 kidnapped and enslaved people on company-owned ships to English colonies in the Americas and the Caribbean. And so
4: I had been researching this for a while, and I knew that Edward Colston was the deputy governor and had transferred a certain amount of money to King William III right before he was crowned. But I'd never actually seen it myself. I'd never seen the evidence myself, and that was what I was digging for.
1: So while Colston's statue has been torn down, that history confronted. In Kensington Palace, the statue of William III still stands, a king who directly invested in and profited from transatlantic slavery. David and Brooke can find no obvious signs about this, no plaque in the grounds to acknowledge this information. The history, it seems, is hidden from view.
0: Isn't there a lack of actual acknowledgement and drama? about what this, the impact of this This is. We're looking at an enslaved person in a royal palace. Yes,
4: this should say William III, who was the sitting governor of the Royal African Company and held a vast amount of stock and was receiving dividends off of the slave trade. That is what it should say.
0: And that it was a company that
4: that traded in,
0: that enslaved and traded in enslaved people, and he was um, a huge shareholder and a governor in it.
1: It's not just William III. Historians have found that over a period of 270 years, there's been 12 British monarchs that sponsored, supported or profited from Britain's involvement in slavery. And uncovering all of these findings has been hard. 17th century scrolls are difficult to decipher.
4: It is um, tedious. Um, it is, you know, it's in Stuart handwriting, and you also kind of have to be familiar with the shorthand that they use, and you have to know what you're looking for because it's extremely easy to miss the detail.
1: Reporter David Conn has been combing through the history books too, unpicking centuries of connections between British monarchs and this horrifying practice.
0: We're not talking about one episode in our history, so in the end. The line of monarchs that, that you can trace is Queen Elizabeth I in 1564 sponsored a voyage to Africa that was to capture enslave people uh, and traffic them across the Atlantic. Right through to 1760, uh, George II was the governor of the South Sea Company that was doing the same 200 years later.
1: After George II, there were three more kings that opposed abolition. And during that time, many, many more people continued to be enslaved.
0: The coronation is going to be absolutely laden with history um, and historical artefacts and all the regalia that goes back in time. Um, And this is part of our history and it's part of the monarchy's history.
1: So, as David is preparing to publish, the moment comes to put the findings to the palace. This unearthed document linking Colston and William III and the fact that we've laid out an unbroken line of monarchs from Elizabeth I to William IV who were actively involved in or benefited from the slave trade. Throughout this investigation we've generally received the briefest of responses from the palace to our reporting, but this time it's different. In an unprecedented statement from Buckingham Palace, King Charles today signalled his support for research into the royal family's historical links with the slave trade. It follows the publication of a document showing that William III received shares from a Bristol-based slave trader. A spokesperson for the palace told David that the king will support a study into the links between the British monarchy and the transatlantic slave trade by giving access to the royal archives and the royal collection. We learned the research will be conducted by historian Camilla de Koning as part of her PhD at Manchester University. On the one hand,
4: it's a, it's a welcome response and it's an unprecedented response. Queen Elizabeth remained silent on this issue. She did not want to discuss it. So I'm... Very glad to see that Charles is acknowledging that these links exist because he has been presented with irrefutable historical evidence. And to, you know, deny that evidence or um, say nothing, I just think would have been,
1: you know, a really, really poor choice. So there's already been a huge response to David's reporting, and that document uncovered by Brooke on the shares in the Royal African Company given to William III... They've laid out how monarchs over centuries actively sponsored, supported or profited from Britain's involvement in slavery. From Elizabeth I to William IV, a period of 270 years. But there's more. David is about to find another link to the past, a much more personal one for the new king. Someone who's been following his coverage gets in touch.
5: My name is Desiree Batiste. I am a researcher and a writer. And on the research side, I conduct commissioned research for institutions exploring links to transatlantic slavery. When I saw the incredible series of articles about the cost of the crown, I I thought it would be a good idea actually to alert the Guardian to this because it just seemed to chime well with work that they were already doing.
1: Desiree was doing research into powerful plantation owners for a project with Fulham Palace and for her own research for a play. During lockdown, she found herself poring over old manuscripts and records, digging into niche genealogical blogs. And there, she came across the family
5: name, Portius, and she decided to start following the family tree. And I first came across uh, Bishop Portius's name then because he has a well-known, well-established link to slavery through his parents who were both Virginia planters and uh, I was interested enough to look a little bit at that Virginia family and that's where I first came across the name Edward Portius.
1: The document Desiree has shown David reveals that a man called Edward Porteous a direct ancestor of Charles was involved in buying at least 200 enslaved African people through the
5: Royal African Company. And it was only when I started looking at the Virginia story more closely. I kept seeing references to the royal family and I realised that it was a very well-established link in various genealogical blogs in Virginia, in various, you know, even online published um, sources. And I think what was interesting is that I didn't feel like the dots had been connected. So even though it was known that Bailby Porteous had um, relatives who were slave owners, and they were known by name. And it was also known over on the Virginia side, especially, that the Portia's family are direct uh, ancestors of the current royal family. Somehow, the 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 importance of that hadn't been quite put together.
1: So you're the one that kind of makes that logic bridge between, OK, we know this is what they were getting up to in Virginia. And this is where the family tree goes. And therefore, the two are connected. Yes. As she goes down a family tree, she finds that plantation owner Edward Portius had a son, Robert, who inherited his father's estate, including the human beings on it. And then Robert moved to England. Later, a direct descendant of Robert married the aristocrat Claude Bowes Lyon, whose granddaughter was the Queen Mother. So what does it feel like in that moment of making that link and thinking, hang on, has nobody else seen
5: this? I felt two things as a researcher i was very surprised you know that this wasn't more widely known but also as a person who's from the caribbean and who is descended from the enslaved of the british empire i felt a sadness and i felt that this was really quite important and that it was very very important that this was brought out into the public domain i grew up in trinidad we are well educated on the story of the british empire um And so it is a surprise, it's always a surprise when I'm having conversations with friends in the UK uh, about anything to do with colonialism and particularly to do with the history of transatlantic slavery. I'm always surprised by how uninformed people are. We are ahead, you know, young people who who, who grew up in, in the Caribbean are ahead because we're taught our history. We're taught this history and it isn't our history only, it is British history. Palace officials
1: said in response to David's initial reporting that Charles took profoundly seriously the issue of slavery, which he has described as an appalling atrocity. But when presented with these new findings, linking the king through a personal and direct ancestral connection to a man who trafficked an enslaved people, they said they would be unable to respond until after the coronation because of the intense pressure of the preparations. Coming up, how serious is the monarchy about shining a light on its hidden past?
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash today in focus. Like other
1: institutions, The Guardian has been probing its links with transatlantic slavery. The paper was founded by Manchester cotton traders in the 19th century. Leading this newly published project called Cotton Capital has been editor Maya Wolf Robinson, who has spent the past two years grappling with this complex history. So I wanted to get her thoughts on the research of Brooke, Desiree and David. We know that this issue goes much wider. So, how are other institutions and monarchies in other countries investigating their
3: links to slavery? In terms of monarchies, it's quite interesting to look at the Netherlands. So, the Dutch king commissioned independent research into the Dutch royal family's role in slavery and colonialism a couple of years ago. And that, I understand, is being carried out by a team of historians and isn't due to be published until 2026. Meanwhile, in the UK, and particularly, we've seen a whole raft of institutions, um, including universities like the University of Cambridge and Glasgow and other places like the Church of England, as well as the Bank of England, um, undertake research to investigate their own links. So do you think there's a kind of a movement of people starting to recognise and
1: wake up to this?
3: Yeah, it definitely feels like momentum's building, um, which is definitely you know, in no small part accelerated by the Black Lives Matter protests. And so in the UK, that led to calls for a great understanding of how slavery had shaped the country. So we are seeing more institutions, including The Guardian, as well as individuals and families exploring this. But I guess I would say we, we're some way off the, the conversations being at a level where they would need to for this to be um, discussed on a state level. It's not being discussed um, really by politicians. And so now we've
1: heard that there's a PhD student who's endorsed by the palace, who's going to be digging into this deeper, you know, investigating the historic links of a certain time period anyway, of the royalties links to slavery. And um, what do you make of that? It's going to be one person looking into this. Is Is that sufficient?
3: Well, look, it's really welcome that the royal family has not only opened its archives, but for the first time, um, you know, signaled that that support publicly. However, although I'm sure this PhD researcher is brilliant, (laughs) um, anyone I know who's ever done a PhD says it's the most incredibly stressful process of their entire lives. And so I cannot imagine how much more that would be if you have, you know, all of this pressure and scrutiny and eyes on you. So I really don't envy her task. And, you know, whilst I'm I'm not an expert, but the historians who are will say that there is a lot of work to be done. And you could argue that if the panelists were really serious about this, then they'd commission a whole team of really well-resourced researchers and forensic accountants to do this work.
1: We're also at this kind of shifting moment in terms of where the the kind of the the Commonwealth sits, the kind of movement in the approach to those kind of former colonies in different parts of the Caribbean. You've done a fair bit of travelling for the Cotton Capital Project and I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, what the sentiment is towards the British monarchy in some of those
3: former colonies. When I was in Jamaica last year, it was when the Queen's funeral was on and it was really palpable to note, just on an anecdotal level, the difference in attitudes towards The Queen, where there was still some fondness and affection, particularly among a particular generation, perhaps, and a really different attitude towards Prince Charles. And I think that there's a project called the Visible Crown, which is researchers in the UK and in the Caribbean that monitor attitudes towards the royal family in the Caribbean. And they did a really interesting survey in Barbados a couple of years ago. And I think it was about 12% of those surveyed had a favourable attitude towards Prince Charles. In the last few years, we've had the Windrush scandal um, that was exposed by The Guardian, where there was a lot of people in the Caribbean that felt a huge amount of betrayal and upset at this treatment of a generation who had been through so much and made so many sacrifices. Then you had Barbados removing the monarchy as the head of
5: state in 2021. The time has come to fully leave our colonial past behind. Barbadians want a Barbadian head of state. This is the ultimate statement of confidence in who we are and what we are capable of achieving.
3: And so whilst there are quite a few countries that have been having these conversations about becoming a republic on and off for a few decades, I think that probably accelerated them. And then the other thing is that Pretty disastrous royal tour last year with Prince William, which saw protests for reparations um, in Belize, the Bahamas, and Jamaica during the visit.
0: Not quite the welcome they were hoping for. At one of the first places William and Kate were supposed to visit, protests forced the couple to cancel. This is our land, this is our property.
3: And since then, not only in those three countries, but also St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Antigua and Barbuda have all made statements about wanting to take steps towards becoming a republic. So there definitely are really kind of shifting attitudes towards the royal family in a lot of these places.
1: So Maya, we're years off getting that palace supported report and we can't assume what will be in it. We don't know yet. But something that's often brought up when we're having these discussions is the idea of reparations, which, you know, we know are not just necessarily financial. They can also be other things, other forms of restorative justice. I wonder what you think reparations might look like in this case and and how likely it might be that they happen.
3: So It is a big question in terms of what reparations look like. It's one that we actually look at in the final episode of the Cotton Capital podcast. And one of the first things that I learned through conversations with lots of different people is that it does mean different things to different people, different people in the reparations movement and in the descendants of the enslaved. But I guess one thing that is noticeable for most is that it is almost always about more than money. So Professor Oliver Otele, who wrote about this for the Cotton Capital series, talks about the different aspects of how you work towards repair for the harm that has been done. And that will be different according to different people. So one of the really important steps for any kind of reparative process is that it's built on collaboration and consultation. It's not a one-way process where the... People who are seeking to atone just make all the decisions about how that is done in isolation. So I guess the first step would be the monarchy, having some of those conversations and doing some listening.
1: Coming up tomorrow, we head out to explore the huge tracts of land owned by the family.
0: Um, wow, so a sort of stunning, giant country mansion. Let's try and count the windows.
1: Yeah. And make our final calculations as we tot up the value of the king's hidden wealth. My thanks to Maya Wolf robinson And do go back and listen to the groundbreaking Cotton Capital podcast series, which concludes this Monday. Thanks also to Toyin Agbetu, Desiree Baptiste, Brooke Newman and David Kahn. Brooke's forthcoming book, The Queen's Silence, The Hidden History of the British Monarchy and Slavery, will be published in 2025. And you can follow Desiree Baptiste on social media for news about her play, Incidents in the Life of an Anglican Slave. And finally, The Guardian is today marking World Press Freedom Day. It's never been easier to support the free press, and yet it's never been in greater peril. Please do consider supporting The Guardian and other independent newspapers from around the world. That's it for today. You can read all of our Cost of the Crown reporting at theguardian.com. This series is produced by Lucy Hoff. It's reported and presented by me, Maeve McClendon. Sound design by Rudy Zigadlo. The executive producer is Phil Maynard. Join us for the fourth episode of our Cost of the Crown mini-series tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.